Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Scott Ritchie, author of the new book, The Flemings of Fleming Island, and Historic Florida Family. Letters from guests who first stayed with the Flemings in the 1850s always mention the fact that the Flemings used to be well off, but they lost much during the Indian Wars. We'll discuss interviews with black Floridians conducted in the 1930s, It's kind of a fascinating cross-section, and and a lot of these oral traditions and oral histories might have been lost had they not been collected by these field workers in the late 1930s. And we'll talk about prehistoric shell mounds. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Frederick Delius composed the Florida Suite in 1887, inspired by the rural setting of his orange grove on the St. John's River. A century earlier, in 1783, Irishman George Fleming arrived in the same area of Spanish colonial Florida. Scott Ritchie is author of the new book, The Flemings of Fleming Island and Historic Florida Family. There was an oral tradition in the family that we don't know much about George, but in fact we do because of the East Florida Papers. George came first to Charleston, South Carolina, where he worked for a firm, Napier, Rapoli, and Bennett. And they sold commodities of all sorts. And they chose George Fleming for some reason to go to St. Augustine to do business there, to sell textiles and perhaps other commodities. And I don't think that was an accidental choice because he had a relative living in Spanish East Florida by the name of Carlos Howard, Charles Howard, who was also an Irishman and had been in the Spanish militia for over 20 years and serving the Spanish government for over 20 years. And that the new governor of East Florida relied upon for a great many things because he was fluent in French, fluent in Spanish, fluent in English. And I think that's why he came, because he had this relative. I don't know what the relationship was, but I do know they were family. George Fleming quickly integrated into Spanish colonial St. Augustine. His family resided in the blocks directly south of the park in downtown St. Augustine, where the slave market still stands. Fleming first lived in a residence somewhere on Charlotte Street. I couldn't identify where that was. And uh, 
by 1785, that's just two years after he arrived in St. Augustine, he was living in the Facio house. And um, from my best guess, he continued living in the Facio house when he married Facio's daughter, Sophia, and continued as a resident of the Facio house until he purchased a house on the next block over, and that became his and his wife's home. Every document I could find, every shred of evidence I could find indicated that the Fleming family lived in St. Augustine up until 1812, 1813, at which time the circumstances of the Patriot War of 1812, 1813 somehow prompted them to move to a town lot in Fernandina where they, they had a small home. George Fleming and his family established the plantation Hibernia on an island in the St. John's River known today as Fleming Island. Scott Ritchie. A lot of uh, sources you might find on the internet say that George Fleming got Hibernia in 1790 as a headright grant. That's not true. The headright grant system initiated in 1790, but he first started working at Hibernia in 1796, located directly across the St. John's River from his father-in-law's plantation, New Switzerland. He applied for the headright grant in 1800 and received it, and cooperatively with his father, farmed the land for the next 12 years until the Patriot War of 1812-1813. There's a, a wonderful letter that was published in the Florida Historical Society Quarterly some years ago about a time period in October when Facio and Fleming were out at the New Switzerland plantation and harvesting the cotton. It's really a great read. Fleming family patriarch George Fleming died in 1821, the same year that the Adams-Onis Treaty made Florida a U.S. territory. Scott Ritchie says that the family fell on hard times after George's death. He'd left no will, and he apparently left a lot of debts. I wrote Chapter 2 about that, how the family coped with the death of George, and it was difficult. Through the uh, St. Augustine Historical Society, I found a series of lawsuits, one lawsuit after another, all throughout the 1820s, paying off debts or not paying debts and being called into court because of it. And it sounds like in some cases they dodged creditors because they just simply didn't have the money or they didn't want to pay. I don't know which. But it was definitely a difficult time for the family. They were trying to build their new home at Hibernia, a decision that it looks like George made shortly before his death to try and direct the family in that direction. Family oral traditions say they became successful as planters. I, I have my doubts whether they were really successful as planters. I think they managed to eke out a living. And they lived in somewhat high style for a family out in the wilds of Florida. But still, they were just getting by, I think. The Fleming family plantation of Hibernia was destroyed and rebuilt several times during the 19th century, as Scott Ritchie describes in his book, The Flemings of Fleming Island and Historic Florida Family. The first destruction of Hibernia, let's call it that, occurred during the Patriot War of 1812-1813. At that time, George Fleming and his wife and children did not live in Hibernia. That was not their home. They lived in St. Augustine, as I mentioned earlier. But it was his business, and it was his plantation, and it was utterly ruined and laid fallow until 1821 when he started rebuilding again. Once the family reestablished the plantation and made it their home, it was destroyed again during the Seminole War. Once they rebuilt after the Seminole War and got their boarding business going, it was destroyed again by the fire of 1858. And within short order, the Civil War came, and it was devastated by the Civil War. So that's one, two, three, four different times the Fleming family had to rebuild at Hibernia. And I, I'm impressed <laughs> that they managed to do that so many times. It seems a lot of people might have given up. Their relatives across the river did. When New Switzerland Plantation was destroyed in the Seminole War, they stopped. They never rebuilt again. And that's why that name doesn't appear on maps anymore. 
Despite being negatively impacted by the Seminole Wars, by the mid-1800s, the Fleming family were participants in Florida's early tourism industry, operating Hibernia as a successful boarding house. Letters from guests who first stayed with the Flemings in the 1850s always mention the fact that the Flemings used to be well off, but they lost much during the Indian Wars. And basically, they lost everything during the Indian Wars, whatever they had. All they had left was their land, and they managed, they, they sold it off after they got clear title from the United States to that land, because remember, those lands were given to them as Spanish land grants, and they had to prove their title before the United States would recognize their ownership. And that took a long, long time. The Fleming family recovery from the Seminole Wars was fairly short-lived as the Civil War brought more challenges their way. Just before the war, they first lost their home to a tragic fire, and they rebuilt the home that the people of Clay County know of as the Fleming Mansion. And what a big, beautiful home that was. And then the war broke out, and their business was shut off. Their sons went to war. During the war, Margaret Fleming's husband, Lewis, died in 1862. During the war, all four of her sons went off to serve the Confederacy. One of her sons died in battle. She was evicted from her home, and her home was was basically destroyed. The shell remained. The structure was there, and it was sound, but it was ransacked. It was ravaged. And after the war, she had to start over again. She started over after the fire in 1858. She was there to help the family start over with it when they returned to Hibernia after the Seminole Wars, and then she started over again after the Civil War. It's, it's pretty remarkable fortitude on her part. Two separate outbreaks of yellow fever in the Jacksonville area caused illness and death among Fleming family members in the late 1800s. Following the death of Margaret Seton Fleming, her son Frederick took over the boarding house operation for more than 50 years. Scott Ritchie. Margaret Seton Fleming died peripherally, you might say, as, as a result of the yellow fever epidemic. When her daughter Maggie died, Margaret Fleming blamed herself for her daughter's death, and she wasted away in a matter of months. And after that, it was Fred running the hotel entirely. He married a woman named Margot Baldwin, Margaret Baldwin. Her nickname was Margot. And together, they took what was a large, beautiful home and a boarding house and a very fine one for guests who came down primarily from the north to escape the cold winters. And they transformed it into what a man named Robert Jones, who was once with the State Bureau of Historic Preservation, called the Hibernia Winter Resort, a full-blown resort. They added an in-ground swimming pool. They added a tennis court. They added more cottages to expand guest capacity. They added a golf course with the kindly assistance and aid of a benefactress by the name of Fanny Brown, who I could go on a long time about her her benefit to the Fleming family and to the Hibernia Winter Resort. And um, they added riding stables, and there was quail hunting, and there were boating excursions. And it was quite the lovely place to come spend your winters, and many guests came and stayed for extended periods of time. Probably the most recognizable name from the Flemings of Fleming Island is Francis Philip Fleming, the 15th governor of Florida and an early president of the Florida Historical Society. Frank began his professional career after the Civil War. He served the Confederacy during the Civil War, and he actually considered leaving Florida because he was so disappointed that Union rule was going to prevail in Jacksonville. But he changed his heart on that one, and he moved to Jacksonville and took up the study of the law, became admitted to the bar, and became an active lawyer in the Jacksonville community and also active with the Democratic Party of Florida. And uh, for 20 years, he aided campaigns of others in their political aspirations. And then in 1888, in Duval County, 
citizens of the county, members of the Democratic Committee of Duval County, persuaded him to run for governor, which he did. And he had a remarkable campaign throughout the yellow fever epidemic in Jacksonville and throughout torrential rains in Florida, through which he traversed the state up, down, left, right, in trains, in buggies, in boats, getting everywhere he could, anywhere he can get past quarantine officials to give campaign speeches in an effort to get elected as governor of Florida, which he ultimately did. A small portion of Hibernia remains in the Fleming family today. Scott Ritchie married a sixth-generation member of the Fleming family in Florida, and their children were all born in their ancestral family home. Although Ritchie taught at the University of Texas for 20 years, his family still has a home on Fleming Island. It was once a cottage as a part of the Hibernia Winter Resort. And really interestingly, it has a direct connection to the ship Titanic, the actual Titanic that was struck by an iceberg and went down. The house was built by a man named Clement Acton Griscom, a shipping magnate out of Philadelphia, who was the CEO of International Mercantile Marine and who frequented Hibernia as a guest in the 19th century and purchased a plot of land and built his own little cottage. That's our house today. Scott Ritchie is author of the new book, The Flemings of Fleming Island and Historic Florida Family, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the 1930s, the Works Progress Administration sponsored the collection of interviews with African Americans in Florida. 
Yeah, that's right, Ben. And this project was part of a broader national initiative known as the Federal Writers Project. And the goal was to produce written pieces or publications looking at the culture of American society. And as one historian put it, it was American culture, warts and all. The idea, at least, was to try and get this overview, a snapshot of what each state looked like. You know, what was America? in the mid to late 1930s, early 1940s. And the Florida publication, what, what was ultimately produced, there were a series of pamphlets and smaller publications, but the main publication was called A Guide to the Southernmost State. It was part of the American Guide series. It's this thick hardcover book that kind of looks at who Floridians were in the late 1930s. And they interviewed you know sponge divers and tarpon springs and cracker cowboys, but also interviewed African-Americans who were living in Florida, many of whom were native Floridians and some who had lived in the state during the antebellum period, who, who had actually lived as slaves. You know, these slave interviews became a big part of what these interviews were about. But the project itself and the Federal Writers Project, their offices were based in Jacksonville. And within this office, there was a subcommittee, if you will. It was called the Florida Negro Unit. And their whole goal over the course of about five or six years was to produce a separate publication entitled The Florida Negro. Uh, now, this publication was actually never saw the light of day until many decades later, until actually the, the very last decade of the 20th century, until historians actually dug the original notes and everything, put it together into a publication. So the Florida Negro as a book was never produced during that time period. But the notes, the interviews, fortunately survived in archives and were preserved. And then historians and anthropologists are, are able to access this material and really kind of get a look at this subset of Florida culture and Florida society in the late 1930s. And here at the Library of Florida History, you have some of these original interview transcripts that can't be found anywhere else, and some of them written by a very prominent Florida writer. Yeah, that's right. We have what amounts to a banker's box worth of original documentation and some photocopies. Now, some of these are duplicated in other institutions. So the University of Florida actually has a large collection of original material and the Library of Congress. Remember, this was a federal project. So a lot of this material, especially the material that ultimately made it into the Florida Guide series, that material can be found at the Library of Congress uh, in Washington, D.C. But what we have here are original files and the actual typed notes that these field workers collected when they went out, did these interviews, collected these oral histories, talked to people who were actually living in these mostly rural cities and towns throughout Florida. I grabbed a few of the files that we're actually looking at today. The two largest folders actually comprise the first of which is music and songs, and the second is folklore. Now, there was a big emphasis on collecting folklore or folk life, which was kind of coming into its own in terms of an ethnographic study. You know, the the history and culture through songs and oral history traditions and stories. And as you mentioned, there was a famous Floridian who produced a lot of this research, and that was Zora Neale Hurston. In fact, what we're looking at here are original notes that were compiled by Zora Neale Hurston, some of which focus on Eatonville, the town that she grew up in, of course, made famous by Zora Neale Hurston. But she spent a lot of time in Jacksonville, in South Florida, around Lake Okeechobee, in turpentine camps. There were other workers who were in West Florida. In fact, we have an interview with with a gentleman who was born in Pensacola in the 1840s, who was still alive in the 1930s and was interviewed by the Florida Negro Unit. And they included those transcripts in the files that we have here. So it's kind of a fascinating cross-section. And, and a lot of these oral traditions and oral histories might have been lost had they not been collected by these field workers in the late 1930s. 
And while these interviews are, are definitely valuable historical resources, modern historians must also be careful when evaluating the information they contain, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's a very complicated piece of original documentation. So the Federal Writers Project in general, again, they, they try to capture this authentic look at American life and society. But you have to remember, too, this was a giant federal machine. So there wasn't a whole lot of direction. There weren't these standard formats. So a lot of the interviews are very different. So depending on who was doing the interview, they got different types of information. They may not have done what we would consider kind of the due diligence of an oral historian today. They just sort of grabbed stories, wrote these stories, down. There weren't a whole lot of footnotes. There were also some issues with authorship. You know, they were written, of course, by these field workers, but the notes may have been compiled from other interviews taken at earlier time periods and then consolidated into these stories. So it really gets kind of complicated. And also remember, too, that Florida was a part of the Jim Crow South. You know, so these were segregated segments of Florida's population. So they're writing kind of under the umbrella of segregation. They may be even self-censured in some ways. But remember, too, that the editing offices in Jacksonville, you know, the people that were really in charge, the supervisors of the Federal Writers Project, were all white. So they're writing to a white audience, and, and the supervisors would ultimately edit out things that they thought were probably not what they thought were appropriate for a 1930s, largely white Southern audience. Well, these are some really fascinating documents, Ben, and uh, thanks as always. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see some of the documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Shell mounds were created all over Florida by the state's indigenous people. Holly Baker is public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at prehistoric shell mounds. Zach Gilmore is an associate professor of anthropology and the archaeology program coordinator at Rollins College in Orlando. He is also the author of Gathering at Silver Glen, Community and History in Late Archaic Florida, a book about hunter-gatherer interactions at one of the largest and most elaborate shell mound complexes in the southeastern United States. Zach Gilmore told me about shell mounds along the St. Johns River, left behind by indigenous peoples in Florida long before European contact. Shell mounds are essentially what, what the name implies. They're, they're just large piles of shellfish remains um, and other artifacts that were deposited by pre-Columbian Indians. In Florida, they occur along both coastlines and also along most of the major river valleys. They date mostly to what's called the Archaic Period, um, a long period between around like 7,400 and 3,500 years ago. There were some that were built a little later than that, but they're, they're not as common. As Zach Gilmore explains, the remains of ancient shell mounds can be found scattered across Florida. Some of the largest shell mounds in, in Florida and really anywhere in North America were constructed along the St. Johns River. At about 
seven to eight thousand years ago, the human population in this area sort of exploded as surface water became more abundant, I guess. Um, sea level was rising and a lot of the artesian springs in the area that we know about now in Florida started to flow around this time. And it created some really productive aquatic environments that, that people moved in and took advantage of. And one of the most productive resources in those environments was shellfish. So by at least 7,400 years ago, people began piling up shell along the river. And eventually hundreds of, of really massive shell mounds were constructed, uh, some of which grew to more than 10 meters tall and hundreds of meters across. The biggest mounds were constructed in what's, the, what's called the middle section of the St. John's River. So from Lake George in the north around the Ocala National Forest, and then south to around um, Lake Monroe, around the city of Sanford, is where the largest shell mounds were constructed. Unfortunately, that's the area that was most heavily mined as well. There are a few that are still intact. So at uh, Hantoon Island State Park, for example, one of the, the largest shell mounds is still intact, and there's a hiking trail that goes right up to it. Um, and there are a few other examples, but, but there are only, only a handful that are still around of the, the really big ones. Historians and archaeologists once understood that shell middens were simply garbage piles left behind by prehistoric people, but researchers now believe they were much more significant than that. For a long time, archaeologists interpreted shell mounds simply as, as oversized middens or piles of domestic garbage. They thought uh, small groups of people just eating their everyday meals and, and throwing the remains down could have led to the accumulation of a shell mound. Radiocarbon dates indicate that a lot of mounds weren't slow, gradual accumulations. They actually were constructed relatively rapidly and seemingly uh, intentionally, given their, their sometimes formalized shapes. Um, we also know that some mounds served as cemeteries. Uh, many contained, uh, you know, between dozens and hundreds of individual burials. Others served as large-scale gathering places where feasts and other religious ceremonies were held. And the analysis of artifacts um, from shell mounds, including pottery vessels and various stone tools, suggests that, that many of those objects originated hundreds of miles away from the sites. And so shell mounds served as, as the centers of these, these large uh, regional-scale trade networks. A lot of objects were brought in. There's evidence even that some non-local individuals were buried at the shell mounds. So people, people were moving into these as, as large gathering places. The shell mounds were, were a lot more than just piles of garbage. Um, they were important social and cultural centers for the people who lived along the St. John's. In the early 20th century, many shell mounds in Florida were mined for road construction and other projects. Now only a fraction of the shell mounds remain. Zach Gilmore. Unfortunately, most of those hundreds of, of original shell mounds that existed along the river um, have been severely damaged or destroyed. Uh, during the first half of the 20th century, um, shell mining was a, a big business in, in uh, northern and central Florida. And so at a lot of mounds, heavy equipment was brought in and they were, they were dug out. The shell was removed and put on barges and then ended up as road fill uh, across much of, of the region. So a lot of roads and, and, for example, Lake and Marion and Volusia counties are actually paved, or at least underneath the pavement is a layer of, of shell midden still containing artifacts and, and human bones and, and all the other constituents. Um, so only a few of the largest mounds are left intact. Um, fortunately, even the, the mounds that were mined 
archaeologists are able to go in and learn about a lot of information from them. Oftentimes, the subterranean portion of the mound, the footprint is still intact. And so archaeologists are still able to learn from them, but they don't exist as, you know, the huge monumental structures in the landscape like they once did. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.